2: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
3: You know, I do think that you have to keep remembering that you're telling a story to a person, and that person can't read your mind. That person is not an expert. They depend entirely on you to learn about this subject and you need to find a way to to get that across while telling a story. And, you know, most stories are about people, so you have to have a sense for the people as well.
2: Carl Zimmer has a knack for storytelling that's so good, he can hook us on some pretty unlikely topics, like a gruesome parasitic worm or the microbes that live in his belly button, or one of my favorites, the Neanderthal that lurks in all of us. He covers a very wide range. His most recent book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, includes the unhappy story of a young girl who had the misfortune to become a symbol of one of the most shameful episodes in the history of science. Carl, I am so thrilled that you're on the show today. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. I'm such a fan of yours. You you have this incredible ability to make me read the rest of an article. (laughs)
3: That's the trick.
2: Yeah, you do it, you tell a story or you just say an amazing thing and it sounds so hard to believe that I want to read the rest. What, what, are, what, are, what, are, what are the other ways you make me read on?
3: Um, you know, I try to look at what I'm writing, if it's an article or a book or anything in between, not as an opportunity to just bury you. Uh, I want to tell you a story. I don't want to drown you in facts So I try to figure out, actually, what's the minimum that I can get away with in terms of giving you information? Because then I can actually take my time and make that part of a story, rather than it just feeling like you're having a semester's worth of information crammed in your head in five minutes.
2: Yeah, yeah, Um, A
3: whole lot of little facts uh, do not tell a story, and they don't get to the heart of the matter.
2: That's exactly the problem that we try to work with when we teach scientists to communicate better. One of the big tasks is to get them to understand that they know all the details, but those details without the big picture are really hard to make sense of for the average reader.
3: Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And I I do some teaching of my own, and uh, a lot of the people I work with are undergraduate science majors or graduate students uh, maybe some postdocs who are in in science and already they're sort of locked into this attitude of I just need to to give people more data I need to mo- use more jargon and then all problems will be solved and uh, and so I have to I just have to you know do exercises with them and say like okay let's just not use any jargon at all you know let's just not just use everyday language and let's see how far we can get let's use metaphors you know and you don't have to be, ultimately precise about absolutely every little thing. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, if someone can come away with the big picture, that'll be better.
2: When you teach and and you're teaching science writing, do you have something you can boil it down to that you think is the most important thing to remember?
3: Um, yeah, I, I, I think over the years, uh, teaching has actually helped me to sort of articulate to myself uh, how this whole thing works because I kind of learned it by intuition. And so, you know, I do think that um, you have to keep remembering that you're telling a story to a person and that person can't read your mind. That person is not an expert uh, in the area that you are either an expert in as a scientist or you are sort of an amateur expert as a journalist. Like, you, they depend entirely on you uh, to to learn about this subject, and um, and you need to find a way to to get that across while telling a story, and you know most stories are about people, so you have to have a sense for the people as well.
2: Um, it's uncanny because that's almost word for word the way I would put it too, and the idea that what you have to say is not the point of the communication nearly so much as what the person you're saying it to, is going through while you tell them.
3: Yeah, my, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Ed Young, who's a writer at The Atlantic, uh, I had him talk to one of my classes, and he had this wonderful way of putting it. Um, he says, you know, let's say you're writing about snails, uh, and maybe people don't naturally care about snails. But if you, but if you write about a person who cares about snails...
2: You know, like a scientist (laughs) trying to save them. You can transfer that interest. Yeah,
3: people will care about a person who cares about snails.
2: Is that an example of, of a video I saw where you were telling a group of young people about your favorite parasite? Was it your interest in the parasite that did it, or was it just that it was an amazing story? I I couldn't get all—the looks on the faces of the kids showed that they were enthralled. And if you had taken a picture of me at the same time, you'd have seen my enthrallment.
3: I mean, I wrote a whole book about parasites. I love them so much. And the thing is that <laughs> it's the first
2: person that's ever said to me, well, "I love parasites."
3: Oh yeah, no, I, I do, I do, and I'm a proud, uh, proudly have a tapeworm named after me. As oh a no, no that. kidding!
2: You're so lucky. Yeah. I'm l- I'm lucky enough to have a tarantula named hey, after me. Hey, there you me. go. That's yeah, pretty good. Yeah. Can't they find nicer animals to name after us?
3: Uh, well, I I'm I'm quite fond of tapeworms yeah, yeah. myself. Well, I got
2: I got lucky and got to like the tarantulas. So Uh, I'm okay. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, so I mean, and, and sometimes just, you just hear something about the natural world where you, you know, I, I, as a, as a science writer, I'll say like, wait, I've been doing this for a long time and I cannot believe what you're telling me. So in the case of this one parasite you mentioned, this is a parasitoid wasp and, um, someone, I was, Uh, Told me about it when I was just paying a visit to Johns Hopkins, and I had written this book about parasites, Parasite Rex. And he said, "You know, there's a parasite you look you should look into." And I said, "I wrote a whole book about these things. Like I think I'm done." And he starts telling me about a wasp that pulls cockroaches by their antenna like a dog on a leash, and pulls them into their burrow, and then and uh, plants eggs on their underside and then the eggs grow inside of them while they're st- totally still alive. They're just basically zombies and then crawls out of them. And uh, and it was true. I-, I couldn't believe that I had missed that. And so I demanded when my book got reissued that I get to
2: write an epilogue and add that one in. One of the things that interested me an awful lot about that uh, story was the wasp had to sting the, the cockroach a couple of times in precisely the right place Yep, had to first of all know that the cockroach was the place to lay her egg. And then the egg comes out at a certain time. And it's such a complicated series of events that are all tied to one another. How does evolution do a thing like that? (laughs) If any one of those steps was left out, it wouldn't work. So all of those things had to come together and fall through the sieve of evolution in the right possible way?
3: Well, you know, these things can happen one at a time. They don't have to happen all at once. Um, And really, like, you know, evolution doesn't, you don't have to be perfect to survive. That's an important principle in evolution. You have to do well enough. You have to do well enough to to live long enough to have some kids and pass on those genes. Um, so you know, if you look at us, at you know, look at the human body. I mean, people love to talk about how magnificent the human body is in all its complexity, and and I agree. But um, but we get sick, and the older we get, the more likely we are to get sick. And there are all sorts of you know ways in which uh, we become frail, and uh, and a lot of that is. is just because, you know, we've already had kids. You know, uh, like yeah, sort of yeah. natural selection is not acting on us anymore. So um, so we're done. <laughs> and so actually sometimes there are mutations that help us stay healthy when we're young that actually become harmful when we're old. They have, they have different effects at different points uh, in our life. Yeah. But natural selection can favor a mutation like that because what really matters is being healthy when we're young and having kids.
2: You, you tell in, in the book about, you know, the book called she has she has her mother's laugh.": Yeah. You tell the history of, of genes and genetic research with so many fascinating stories. And one of the most fascinating is a story about Emma. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so the origin of genetics as a science happens in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, people learn in high school about, you know, Gregor Mendel, he's working by himself in the 1800s, and he does his pea experiments, and then they're forgotten. Well, what happened then was that people rediscovered his work after a lot of other research had been done, looking at things like cells and chromosomes, and a picture started to emerge. And the basics of genetics started to be figured out. Unfortunately, what happened was that people started to think about everything in terms of really simple genetics, kind of what, like, Mendel saw. The idea that um, very complicated things could be determined by one gene. Mm. And so if you had... A variant of one gene, you could be uh, very, very different in very complex ways. So, for example, um, you could uh, so people began to think that intelligence was something that could be controlled just by one gene. And so, I tell the story of someone who uh, really suffered uh, a lot from that uh, misunderstanding, and her name was Emma Wolverton. Emma was uh, born in New Jersey in the late 1800s and um, basically was um, sent off from her family uh, to an institution for the quote-unquote feeble-minded. Um, and the kids there uh, in, in this place in violent New Jersey, it was a real motley crew of kids. Some of them had problems, that, conditions that we would identify now as, say, Down syndrome or epilepsy. But there are some kids who were just inconvenient or trouble in school. And they were all called feeble-minded. Um, and um, a psychologist there who had just discovered genetics uh, named Henry Goddard, he sent out researchers to go investigate everyone's family because he wanted to draw their genealogy. And he wanted he wanted to prove that feeble-mindedness was genetic. And he did these, in hindsight, were ridiculous things, like um, basically had people, you know, Eighty-year-old people try to remember what their great grandparents were like, you know. And mm. and if they, if someone in the in the uh, colonial era in New Jersey stole a horse, they would mark them as feeble-minded. Mm. You know, it just it, it. Looking at it now, it seems absurd. And yet, um, Henry Goddard was was hailed for this research, and uh, and it was considered incredibly important. And you know, unfortunately, this led to um, policies which were really horrific.
2: So because the idea was you could you could inherit feeble-mindedness, so-called, so the policy i assume was to stop people from uh, reproducing if they had any in their family.
3: So so many of the first geneticists were eugenicists in the sense yeah. that they thought that if you could figure out the genetics of things like diseases or behavior, then you could shape society. You, by Either by encouraging some people to have kids, because they have genes you like, mm. or preventing other people from having kids. So, uh, so Henry Goddard actually um, was, he uh, lobbied very vigorously in New Jersey for the state to pass a law to sterilize people deemed unfit. That law passed. Hmm. And it passed in many other states. In what year? Um, this would have been, I think, around 1915 um, that that laws like this were being passed, and a whole bunch of laws that were with the justification of eugenics across the country, and tens of thousands of people were sterilized under under this law. This these laws were upheld by the Supreme Court, um, and you know the whole. Um, uh, uh, the whole foundation for all of this was just bogus. First of all, intelligence, you know, it it is influenced by genes, but by thousands of genes. um, And it is also very much shaped by the environment. It's a very complex thing. And the genealogies that Henry Goddard was creating were nonsense. Um, And the one for Emma Wolverton, which he really focused on, was just a complete fabrication. Um, but it was still being reproduced in psychology textbooks in the 1960s.
2: So what happened to her?
3: Emma Wolverton, it was very sad. She uh, she was evaluated by Henry Goddard. Um, she scored a bit lower than average, um, which uh, he Henry Goddard came up with a name for someone like that. He, he would call them morons. So Emma Wolverton was the first moron. Hmm. But the fact is that Emma Wolverton from what little there survives of accounts of her was incredibly capable. I mean, she she would like she would work as a substitute kindergarten teacher at the school. Mm. She played the trumpet in her spare time. She liked to produce plays. She taught herself woodworking. She was a remarkable person, but unfortunately, once she got too old for this school for feeble-minded children, they they sent her across the street to an institution for feeble-minded women. And she stayed there for her whole life. In her sixties, she was offered the opportunity to leave, and she just felt like, well, it wasn't for her. She didn't deserve to, to go out into the real world.
2: She she bought it.
3: It it she internalized it. Um, after I think after decades, anybody would. Um, and uh, and she became the poster child for this view of eugenics. You can you in Nazi Germany. They really uh, uh, grabbed a lot of uh, of these uh, writings of people like Henry Goddard, specifically about people like Emma Wolverton. They would talk about her in particular as evidence that uh, that th- there needed to be this 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 racial hygiene, you know. And so they justified sterilizing people in Nazi Germany and then exterminating them uh, based on this this bogus pseudoscience science um, that. Emma Wolverton was a victim of.
2: It's so interesting how we really need, we really depend on peer review and the, the um, skepticism of fellow scientists when somebody has an idea and tries to prove it and sometimes goes to the lengths of proving it with false data.
3: Well, peer review is essential. I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately in the early 1900s, I think, um, many geneticists would have agreed with Goddard. Would have, I mean, so he, peers, he published peers his, peers
2: were in on it. In yes. They
3: were members of the American eugenics society. I mean, it was, it was something that many people did. And actually, you know, there were scientists, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, someone named Thomas Hunt Morgan, who won a Nobel prize for genetics. He was, uh, up at Columbia where he studied fruit flies. And, um, In the 1920s, he said, you know, I study fruit flies, and there are um, many genes that I can identify that control just like the color of fly eyes. That's just a fly's eye. Now, you're talking about behavior. You're talking about intelligence. You're talking about these incredibly complex human traits. And you're telling me that you can pin it down to one gene? It's, we'd be, we, it would be much better, Morgan said, to, uh, to focus your efforts on alleviating poverty. Um, I have to say, unfortunately, that he was in the minority at the time of leading scientists saying that.
2: Um, but it, he did it, represent a really important skeptical view of the prevailing mood
3: Yes, but that did not make the sort of eugenics mindset uh, collapse. Um, and it, what it, finally did? Well, by the 1930s, it was pretty hard for anybody to deny the fact of just how bad the science had been. Mm. And then partly that was because genetics itself itself was maturing and the statistics were getting better and an understanding of how genes work was getting better and so uh, there was, a, a, in Cold Spring uh, a Harbor in New York, there was the Eugenics Records Office, which is kind of the hub of eugenics research in the United States. Uh, and their funders came in the 1930s and said, we're just shutting you down. This is, this is useless. And, um, and certainly when um, American researchers saw the horrors of the Holocaust, which had been justified using... Mm. American uh, based eugenics, um, that was it. Uh, and you know we still I, I would say that we still have eugenics issues today, um, but um, certainly like that that burst of, of you know 40 years of American eugenics pretty much ended with that.
2: When we come back from this short break, Carl Zimmer reveals not only the genes that he and the rest of us share with Neanderthals, but also the genes from a deep-sea microbe that somehow found their way into his belly button. I think you want to stay tuned for this.
1: Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series.
2: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carl Zimmer. One of the things that interests me about your interest in science is that you seem to take it extremely personally. <laughs> you, you actually had your entire genome sequenced, right? Yes. And, and then you did a—they a, a, took a swab from your belly button and, and told you about your, uh, your microbiome. You you really in on the on the inside here? Well, you know, I I, I what's funny is that you know I've written about
3: um, this kind of stuff for a long time, and um, but you know when when people first started talking about sequencing DNA, you know, in the nineties, um, it seemed all it seemed almost like magic. I mean, I have to explain to uh, young scientists or young writers just like how crazy the idea was, you know, when someone said we're gonna sequence the whole human genome, Mm -hmm. people were like, really? Yeah, like that's nuts. Like there's no way we're gonna be able to do that. And the first human genome did cost about $3 billion to sequence, and it was a mess. It was terrible. you know, in, in today's uh, perspective. So a few years ago, um, a geneticist who I uh, was in touch with said, um, hey, we're having this meeting, and if you come to the meeting, uh, this DNA sequencing company is offering to sequence people's genomes for, I think it was like 2000 bucks." And I just couldn't believe it. I was like, th- really? Like, And um, so I had to do it. I absolutely so you had, to had do your
2: it. own personal genome. And it came to you in a on a hard drive.
3: It did. It did. So, so um, people may think of getting their DNA sequenced with things like Twenty Three and Me. This is different. So, like with Twenty Three and Me, you you spit in a tube, and then the tube goes off. And what uh, what will then happen is that uh, a machine will basically look for um, variable little spots in in your DNA. So they're not looking at all your genome. They're looking at maybe you know a fraction of one percent of it.
2: So-called markers. Yes, exactly. So so they pick a number of markers, and, and it's kind of a lot, isn't it?
3: It is a lot. Well, it's getting more and more. So it's in the in the. I guess it's getting towards a million now. I think,
2: which is great. But but you're 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 putting that against a much larger number. Right. So we if have we're going to do the whole genome.
3: Right. So our genome, if you think of it as letters, there's over three billion letters in it, mm-hmm. and so this would be like reading a million letters out of a three billion letter encyclopedia. Right. Um, it can tell you a lot,
2: but um, so but, this can tell you much more your your personal genome sitting on your desk. But what once you get it, this is what I from the time I heard about this, I had this really big question. What are you going to do with it?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was wondering, too. Because <laughs> What did you do with it? Well, it was funny because, you know, I, I thought, okay, well, let me just look at it. I mean, I don't even know what a genome looks like. So you have this hard drive, and you decrypt it, and you look on your computer screen, and you basically see a spreadsheet. But it's like a spreadsheet where the cells are filled with jumbles of letters, and there are billions of them. So it's, it is the spreadsheet from hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so then, you know, I, I, I kind of guessed that I might not know what to do with this on my own. So <laughs> I got in touch with scientists and said, can you help? Can, you know, like, if I give you my genome, you know, and y- could you show me uh, it in the way that you study genomes? And so mm. different people had different kinds of questions that they're asking with human genomes. And so we would uh, we would explore it. So there was one person who studied Neanderthals, and so I said, "All right, I want to, I want you to show me all my Neanderthal DNA. Let's 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 take so a deep dive." So, what
2: percent Neanderthal do you tend to be?
3: Um, I'm. I think I'm around one point two or three. Kind of at quite average I for think, for someone who's twenty three.
2: In me, I think I'm four percent.
3: That's probably an overestimate. They've been scaling it down a uh, bit. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't know no. if you were proud to be 4% Neanderthal. Oh, Some yeah, people I are. I love those guys. Yeah, well, they were amazing. They were. Um, yeah. So
2: so, so, why did you want to know about your Neanderthal heritage, and what did it tell you when you found out?
3: So the thing with Neanderthal DNA that's so interesting is that um, humans, our species, evolved in Africa roughly 300,000 years ago. And then around maybe sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 years ago, there was a, uh, an expansion of Africans, pretty small group coming out of Africa, and they met Neanderthals and they interbred.
2: The Neanderthals had been uh, people from Africa who had come at a much earlier time. Yeah, they, right? So this was a second or so wave.
3: Right. And yeah. these
2: are the people who are basically us, right? These are what you could call modern humans who came in the second wave.
3: Right, right. So the ancestors of Neanderthals may have left Africa maybe 800,000 years ago, 700,000 years ago, spread across Europe and uh, Central Asia, and our ancestors met them. They had kids together, and those kids must have become a part of human society because they passed down their Neanderthal DNA to modern humans. That's why so many people today have Neanderthal DNA. There's actually more Neanderthal DNA on Earth today than there was when there were proper Neanderthals. That's
2: so interesting. Yeah, of course, there are so many more people. So, you get some health benefits from having some Neanderthal ancestors?
3: Well, it's a mixed bag, it seems. So, so the, the thing is, it seems that most Neanderthal genes um, are not that uh, beneficial for us. But um, it looks like there are some Neanderthal genes that seem to be kind of unusually common. And these, interestingly, have to do with things like the immune system. That's just one theory. Like, we really, we don't know much about it. I mean, I have this list of hundreds and hundreds of, of my Neanderthal genes. And when I'll talk to scientists, say like, oh, wow, I have the Neanderthal version of this gene. What does this gene do? They'll say, we don't have any idea (laughs) we don't know what it does in humans or neanderthals
2: and it may be interacting with a a later human gene right to produce an effect that you wouldn't you wouldn't have if you didn't have the neanderthal mixed in
3: yeah so we're 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 it's the 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 world of of neanderthal genetics or neanderthal medicine is is just barely beginning there's so much that scientists don't understand at all so when you know when i will um interview people and say, well, what about this? What about that? I mean, they just keep saying, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know, yeah. we don't know.
2: There's so much more to learn. What did you learn from finding out what was told by the swab on your belly button? Oh. That, that That's really interesting because it's a whole new horizon now, the microbiome. So what what do you know about your microbiome?
3: Well... Um, I, what happened was that a, a, a biologist, uh, at a conference, uh, he was waving around Q-tips and <laughs> a, and asking for people to volunteer to be a part of a study. He said, I want st- to, I want to study the microbiome and I want to do it in this real simple way. I just, I'm just like, I can get a lot of data just by having people just swab their belly button.
2: I don't understand the belly buttons on the outside. How does it give you any indication of what's on the inside?
3: Oh, your microbiomes on the outside too. Your microbiome. Well, I know, but yeah. uh,
2: I, but so why the belly button? I thought uh, there was some association, therefore, between the belly button and the gut. No, I, no. Oh, oh no. okay, I got it all wrong.
3: No, well, no, no. It's it's just there. I mean, every surface on our outside and our inside has some bacteria, and
2: um, so it's this whole new world. But uh, it's also different. I've been told that the the bacteria. On my palm it is more different from that on my elbow than it is between my palm and your palm. That's right. Yeah. So there's why did this guy pick the belly button? What's I mean? It involves opening your shirt and the, why, I, <laughs> why didn't he just take it off your palm?
3: Um, I think. Well, people had already done the palm.
2: Oh, I see.
3: And he thought, huh. This guy belly was buttons. fascinated
2: that, with belly buttons. Well,
3: you know, you think about it. I mean, if you think about it as an environment, it's it's probably an interesting place. It doesn't get a lot of sunlight, you know. It has some lint in there, you know. Like, who knows? Who knows what's in there? So, so what
2: did you find out about your belly button microbiome?
3: So I, what was really interesting, he, he gave me this spreadsheet uh, of with a list uh, of these bacteria that he identified, and, um, you know, they, the DNA of these different species that he was able to get out of my belly button, you know, some of them were matching very strange things. So like there was one, for example, that's known from, it lives in soil in Japan. Mm. So I explained like... I'm Wait, never, that was
2: in your belly yeah, button? Yeah, that was
3: in my belly button. So I explained, I've never been to Japan. And so Rob Dunn, the scientist who did this study, led this study, said, well, it, it's been to you, uh, and but, but the weirder one actually was that was it was a kind of bacteria that is only known. The one sample of this group of bacteria is it was found in the Marianas Trench, in the bottom of the Pacific Ocean.
2: You you've been doing some really interesting sea diving. I how where, how does it get to you? Well. The thing is that that
3: um, what's happening is that uh, this a study like this reveals our vast ignorance of the world's bacteria. Yeah, you know So it's a bit like saying like, "Oh, um, here's a bird. Uh, it must be related to, you know, a bird that if you only knew of one bird in the world, you know, then you would say, if you found another bird, you'd say, oh, this must be like that parakeet in Venezuela, even if you're in in Uh, the United States. Yes, I see. So, you know, there are uh, at this point, basically untold numbers of species of bacteria. So it just so happens that the one bacteria that was in the sort of the databases that most closely matched that one species in my belly button happened to be at the bottom of the ocean, which is pretty amazing. So, um, and I, so I was quite. I, I wrote about this experience, and I was quite open about it. And I, I think I had like fifty-three species of bacteria in my belly button, and I got so much guff from people. Like, well, why? Well, everyone was telling me I needed to, to, to bathe more. You know, I needed to
2: <laughs> really needed
3: to work the soap into my belly button. They, they
2: actually think it's like a foreign thing.
3: People were kind of grossed out, and and I kept saying, like, well, I guess what? Like, in the in the study that Rob Dunn did, I was below average. I mean, there were people who had 100, 150 species of bacteria in their belly
2: button. So we're covered with them, and they're inside us and outside of us. I've read varying accounts of what the proportion of human cells to uh, microbial cells are in us and on us. I've heard twice as many. I've heard ten times as many microbial cells. What what do you think is the best guess?
3: The latest best guess is that we're we have you know in the ballpark of about um, we. So our own our own cells, human cells, there are about thirty-seven trillion of them. That's about as many uh, bacterial cells that we have. Um, The thing is that bacterial cells are a lot smaller than our cells, and so if you were to just scoop up all your bacteria from all of your body into one heap, um, it might
2: be like three pounds or something like that. Three pounds is a lot. It, it is a lot. Yeah. What, do you know? What that is in volume? I mean, is it? Is it like you could put it in a milk container or
3: what? <laughs> um, yeah, you could probably fit it in like a, a quart container. Yeah, something like that. So, I mean, a lot of. I mean, this would not be a fun thing. And again, I, I hope people have not gone back to their lunch because most of this stuff is going to be in in your gut. That,
2: yeah. That's, and and is it, is it not true that most of it is not unhealthy?
3: No, it's, it's the, it is, uh, I mean, we couldn't get,
2: couldn't get along without a lot of it.
3: Right. It's not like if you're healthy, you have no bacteria. And then if you get sick, you have 30 trillion bacteria. Like when you're healthy, you have 30 to 40 trillion bacteria in you. Yes. So, so we, we, we have, we, we get microbes, infecting us like before we're born and they're with us for our whole life and indeed like there are there are some uh, species that um, are quite important for our health so on our skin they actually help to keep our skin moisturized keep it from cracking open um, they create a barrier to prevent other pathogens from getting in that's also true in our gut um, uh, and it may be true in our airway um, so so yeah so so um, it, now it's if you get a uh, you know a bad actor that can kind of slip in there, then yes, you can get quite sick. Um, but the microbiome's role in health is it's quite clear that it's important, but figuring out exactly what it's doing is a whole huge fascinating area of science I've been trying to keep up with, but it's it's tough. There's a lot going on.
2: Have you ever explored uh, through any kind of uh, test what's in your gut in terms of microbiota?
3: I haven't, I haven't, and I just, uh, I, I sort of felt like belly, the belly button experience was interesting enough. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, I feel like I'll get another list of, of Latin names and <laughs> yeah. kind of shrug my shoulders, and, um, you know, you know, there, there's, people are are starting to offer that, you know, as, yeah. as a commercial service, like so, you know, you get your your own DNA sequenced and you send them some poop and they sequence that as well. I honestly, I don't. I don't think that we know enough to to really uh, act on those results uh, most of the time.
2: Um, maybe maybe we will when more people give their data from samples and people can start yeah. to compare it to. New things you can do.
3: Yes, but it's not just yeah. But you 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 have to then do the experiments to yeah. to figure out the mechanisms for it. But right. you know there's some you know there are some um, findings that are really quite striking. I mean I wrote a piece for the Times not too long ago about. Very suggestive, but preliminary research that says, suggests that the microbiome sends out lots of molecules uh, that eventually get to your brain mm. and may potentially affect people's brains in all sorts of uh, good and bad ways. You know, so they're um, they're not just processing our food; they really are are having an influence on us in lots of different ways. Um, you need a healthy microbiome growing up as a child, probably, to um, to develop a healthy immune system. Mm-hmm it actually kind of teaches your immune system how to function properly. And there's an association with, uh, uh, with problems of with the microbiome with kids, with allergies, asthma, and so on. So um, there's a lot there, but, um, it, you know, it is, you do have to be careful uh, not to sort of rush out to a drugstore and buy pull off the first jar of probiotics that you see.
2: Um, yeah, we don't know enough yet.
3: No, but that hasn't stopped people from trying to get rich off of it.
2: (laughs) Or trying to get healthy off of it. Right, right. As you probably know, because I I know you've heard the podcast, we ask seven questions at the end, quick questions, quick answers. What do you wish you really understood?
3: Uh, I wish I really understood how we became human.
2: Oh, and that's uh, – see, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> okay, I want to hear <laughs> more about that I'm happy to sometime. come back. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Hmm. Um,
3: yeah. I struggle with that. I, I'm not... <laughs> I,
2: <laughs> you don't have to admit to any terrible moments. But no,
3: but my wife has sort of pointed out to me like, oh, you could have handled that a little better. <laughs>
2: <laughs> good, that's good. What's um, What's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you?
3: Um, actually, after a talk I gave about human evolution, um, someone came up actually to my wife, who then related to me... Th- This person in the audience was wondering if in the future we would evolve so that we communicated telepathically and we would no longer have mouths. (laughs) Fortunately, she didn't actually ask it in the Q&A because (laughs) um, that would have been an awkward moment. But that was a weird one.
2: What this person thinks life is just talking and not eating.
3: (laughs) Good point. Right.
2: (laughs) Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
3: You know, I got to say, um, in my business, getting people to talk is, is really valuable. So, so you, you
2: would like a compulsive talker?
3: <laughs> if they're talking about something interesting, yeah, I'll just be like,
2: keep it coming. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone at a dinner party, someone you don't know?
3: Um, I try to get them to start telling me specifically stories about their life um and you know i i I, and that's a nice thing that i've gotten from being a journalist is like you know you 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 draw people out you know just to tell me about yourself and um yeah it's it it helps at dinner parties too
2: (laughs) what book changed your life
3: hmm what book changed my life um You know, it's like, I've been really fond over the years of Moby Dick, and I've been trying to figure out why. And I think, um, you know, everyone complains about the parts of Moby Dick that are just about whales and about the biology of whales and so on. Um, And, you know, the fact was, when I was reading that, and I've read it a few times now, but the first time I read it, I remember thinking, oh, this is really interesting, too. This was way before I was a science writer. But I'm thinking maybe like that kind of got me thinking about how you could write about reality and in particular about science in a way that um, was just as good in terms of literature as fiction because here you had a book that was a mix of fiction and nonfiction. Mm. So it, that, has, that book has a special place in my life.
2: That's great. Thank you so much. I did, I've enjoyed this so much.
3: How wonderful. Thanks for
2: having me. This has Thank been great. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Carl Zimmer's substantial contribution to science communication includes 13 books. His latest book is titled She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Power, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. This book recently won the National Academy's Communication Award. Carl also writes a weekly New York Times column called Matter, and he created his own podcast called What is Life? To find out more about Carl and to listen to his podcast, you can visit carlzimmer.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Gene Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon, and it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com clearandvivid, here's what you'll find.
1: For as little as $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too.
2: Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com clearandvivid. C-L-E-A-R-A-N-D-V-I-V-I-D. Next, in our series of conversations, I talk with Brian Green. In Brian's amazing career as a physicist and communicator, he's brought the wonders of the cosmos into our lives. His new book is called Until the End of Time Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. And when we got to talking about meaning in our lives, Brian came up with one of the most eloquent statements I've ever
0: heard about the wonder of our very existence. You and I and everything in the world around us emerged through a sequence of quantum processes stretching all the way back to the Big Bang, heading toward our existence today. And each of those quantum processes could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this, yielding a universe in which neither you nor I or anybody else would be here. And so it is spectacularly unlikely that we are here, and therefore there's a deep sense of gratitude that I feel toward the universe for the mere fact of existence. And it goes beyond just mere existence. We are not rocks, we're not stones, right? Because of the power of evolution, we are so exquisitely ordered, our particle arrangement is so wonderfully configured that we can create beauty. Right? We can experience wonder, we can illuminate mystery. A member of our species wrote the Ninth Symphony. A member of our species wrote Hamlet. I mean, that's spectacular that a collection of particles governed by physical law can do that. And that to me is where this whole story focuses our attention on the capacity of this mere collection of particles to do wondrous things. Brian Green,
2: next time on Clear and Vivid.